Good evening, I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast by Graveyard Shift, dedicated to telling just that, short, scary stories submitted by real people. Whether the stories are real or not, who knows, but they are scary. Tonight, our host, Deadhead, shares with you eight scary stories about rage. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further. But your stories lie just ahead. Down the spiral staircase, around the walls of a pit, your host awaits. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be deceiving. I'll wait for you here. Godspeed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Rusty, a rookie cop whose partner bit off more than he could chew. Here's the tale of Mad Dog. They say the first night on the force determines how the rest of your career will go. Seems like such an ordinary night. So simple. Overnight speed trap out on the highway. My partner, Sergeant Darren Woods, showed me the ropes. Mainly, just the two of us up sitting around waiting for somebody to pass by. And we'd be lucky if anyone actually bothered speeding. Darren sat in the driver's seat, drinking his coffee like he was on vacation. Not a care. I was just looking out my window as the sun was setting. This stretch of the road was so old we were practically in the backwoods. I worried about being put with Sergeant Woods. Word around the station was he was a real hard ass, with or without the badge. He was suspended before. Probably would be again. Those wusses just don't know how to keep criminals in line, he rambled on. I tried not to argue. He was still bitter about it, and the last thing I needed was him pointing that bitterness at me. Just as the sun was nearly gone, we see this car zoom past us. Must have been going 80 in the 65 lane. Dan went right into action, turning on the sirens and giving chase. Knew we'd see some action tonight, rookie. This is going to be fun, he declared. It was a game to him. Didn't take long for us to get on his tail, but he didn't slow down. Not yet, at least. Darren was determined. He wanted to put a stop to this guy. We make it to the long, flat stretch of the highway, no exit in sight, and this guy finally pulls over. The driver knows he can't get away. He's trapped. We get out, and Darren tells him to step out of the vehicle. Tall guy. Black. Looks shaky. Got his license and registration. Franklin Lupin. He seems nervous. 
not just because we pulled him over. He apologizes for speed and admits it. I'm so sorry, but I need to get back home as fast as possible. I need to get back before dark, he kept saying. Darren takes offense to this, snarls, you think you're too good for this? The guy's sweating, he wants out of there. Darren tells him to open the trunk and get against the hood for a pat down. Franklin tells him no, doesn't have any reason to do that. So Darren forces him over the hood of the car, hard. I want to say something, but the words would die in my throat. It's a tense situation. Sergeant Woods has the seniority, so I figured he knows what he's doing, right? He tells me, run his name through the system. I'll take care of him. I walk away as Franklin's telling me not to leave them alone and how he's got to get back home fast. I do as I'm told. I run his name and plates through the computer and it's all green. Couple speeding tickets, but nothing serious. Dude's clean. Then I hear it. That noise. That distinct sound of gunfire. I don't see it, but the flashes and bangs make it certain. I draw my weapon and pace over. There they are, Franklin face down on the ground with a back full of bullets. Darren has his weapon drawn. I asked him what happened. Darren just says, tried to run, he had it coming. I'm mortified. Franklin wasn't a threat and shooting a man in the back was deranged. Before I could do anything else, Darren tells me to prepare for what comes with the badge, the thin blue line. Just need to pretty the scene up, he tells me. Rather, setting the scene up. I didn't know what to do. Franklin was dead. It was just me and Darren, and he had that gun tight in his grip and was looking at me like I couldn't risk it. Besides, not like anyone on the force would back up a rookie against a sergeant. It's just the way the world works. So Darren's plan is to put a tire iron or something from his trunk into his hand, make it look like he took a swing at us. We take the keys off Franklin and pop open the trunk. Lo and behold, it's filled with chains, weights, handcuffs, straitjackets, and all sorts of crazy crap. Bastard was into some kinky crap, Darren laughs. There was way more to this guy than we thought, but we had no clue what. Sun's gone at this point and the stars and moon show up. We don't want to be out here much longer. We go back to Franklin's body and he's gone. Not just that, but his clothes are all over the place. Shredded to scraps like he just got hit by a buzzsaw. Bits of fabric just blown in the wind. Blood from the gunshots is still there, but there's a trail leading away. Darren assures me that a coyote must have wandered off the road and dragged the body away. Problem solved. Then I see it. Mostly a shape in the dark, but the headlights illuminated. I can hear the damn thing crawling on top of Franklin's car. It was an animal, pure and simple. Fur all over its body. Huge. Bigger than any coyote I've ever seen. Big, shining gold eyes that pierced my soul. You know, you've seen these monsters all the time in movies, but when you see one in real life, it's simply unbelievable. A wolf man. It stood on its hind legs and howled as if to taunt us. 
I nearly pissed myself right then and there. The Wolfman thing is roaring, and Darren shoots the monster with every bullet that he has. It bleeds, but it doesn't budge. It was like hitting him with spitballs. The wolf snarls, lunging at Darren. It's quick, like those videos of lions taking down gazelles. Darren's arms were there, and with one chomp of those huge jaws, they were gone. Darren's begging for help, screaming and crying, and, and he can't do a damn thing. It's on him and just tearing him to shreds. A geyser of blood and guts. After that, I just run to the cruiser and drive as fast as I can. Bullets didn't work on this thing. I didn't have a choice. There was no choice. I called up HQ, tell them Darren was attacked by an animal. That's the truth because they wouldn't have believed the bits I left out. We come back with animal control and CSI, but all that's there is Darren's corpse. What's left of it anyway? No wolf, no car, no Franklin. Just us in the dust. His funeral isn't long after. Darren Woods is buried with honors. Died so brutally it was a closed casket. Figured the department felt bad and wanted to give his family some penance as they laid him to rest. My story sticks. Rabbit Coyote got him. Nobody would believe otherwise anyway. And after what happened, I wouldn't say more. Because at the funeral, I see him. Franklin Lupin. No worse for wear, in his Sunday best, for the funeral of the man who he killed and partially devoured. He talks to me privately, says he's sorry, but he wishes Darren would have just given him the ticket before the full moon rose. And he tells me, keep it to yourself, because the light of the full moon illuminates everything and everyone. I saw that golden glimmer in his eyes, the same as that wolf, and I believed him. traffic stop would turn into a howling good time. I know you cadavers are hungry for another story, and I'll serve you one right after this break. for your second serving. Our next story really raises the stakes and promises to suck. I call this next one The Green Family Vampire. This is the diary and testament of Joseph Green. I can stay silent no longer concerning the evil that had plagued my family and cost us so dearly. It all began when I came home from the war. The Confederacy of Rebels had at long last surrendered. 
my brother William and I were at last in our native Quincy, Massachusetts. We arrived by train, haunted by the smell of deceased soldiers held in the nearby car, set for burial. We had longed to see our younger sister Alice and our father George once again, the two of them and some farmhands being the only occupants after our mother's passing from the consumption. William had grown quiet lately. We had seen evil during the time of our conscription, and it weighed heavily on his kind soul. Brothers, you're back, she cried out in joy. William smiled the most sincerely I had seen him in months. He held her, myself and our father, dearly as we embraced. Being together raised his spirits. Later that month, our livestock died in droves. It didn't resemble any disease or pox that we had seen strike our animals before. There were bite marks on the hides of the cattle, like a venom had taken them. But the teeth marks were larger than any serpent. Our moods began to sour. Still, we were together again as a family, and our resolve strengthened. Alice talked about traveling to the city with us, to reminisce, to hear about our war stories. Alice was well-read and a curious girl. We knew she would not anchor herself to the family plot and seek greener pastures. That night as we slept, we heard a terrible cry of fright. It was Alice. William and myself burst through the door to her room. Alice was awake in terror, pointing towards the window. Something had tried to get in, she screamed. I took a closer look and saw a series of scratches in the glass. It couldn't have been the work of a human hand, perhaps a bandit with a knife. But why alert her of his presence? Our father soon entered armed with his revolver. Whatever it was had left, but it could return at any time. Don't cry, sister. We'll protect you. That was the promise William made. The next night, we posted ourselves around the house. Father stayed with Alice on the second floor. We had our rifles with us and kept the farmstead lit by torchlight. As the moon held high, we heard a crash. Something had breached the house. God help me, our sister's cry for help echoed in the dark. We ran in as fast as we could. I heard the struggle as our father cursed and fired at the assailant, followed by a gurgling scream. When we reached the room, we thought to be a safe haven for Alice. We discovered an atrocity instead. Our father was dead his throat torn open and his head nearly removed, an ocean of blood beneath him. Alice was missing. The glass shattered in. How could they have scaled the second story of the house? I looked out the window and could see them, Alice in her white nightgown as she was carried away by the silhouette shape of the bastard. With tears of rage in his eyes, William let out a primal scream. In pure adrenaline, he scaled out the window and ran in pursuit. William was going off pure instinct. I grabbed the lamplight and followed through the front door. My brother taking the light from me as we entered in the surrounding woods and made chase. The forest seemed to stretch on for an eternity, but the determination in saving our beloved sister fueled us onward. Through the path we twisted and winded until at last we found it. A soldier's graveyard. So many had perished in the war that new graveyards were hastily assembled for the loners and outcasts of the war. The ground wasn't even consecrated. Just a place to put the deluge of corpses. 
It didn't take long after that. In a nearby grave, our sister's hand arose from the ground like a flower. Whatever it was that had her captive had buried her. I prayed that she still lived, that this was the sloppy work of a madman, and she still could return to us. With all of our strength, we pulled Alice from an early grave. She was heavy, far too heavy, but we pulled her from the ground. Alice's body struggling for breath as a ghastly shape wrapped around her, biting at her neck and sucking at her blood. It appeared to be a man of age. He was covered in earth, moss and fungus. He wore a uniform, but it was so faded and filthy I could not identify which side he had fought for. He clung to her with all his might as he sucked the very life from her. Eventually he rose, snarling at us, more animal than man. William fired the first shot. It tore through his stomach, but he barely faltered. He rushed at us and I opened fire. Still nothing. He was a ghoul, a vampire. Grandmother used to talk of such creatures from her home country, but here was that childhood terror made flesh. William sensed this as well. He fired again, disorienting the beast before he thrust forward with his bayonet, piercing its unholy heart. It screamed in anguish, howled as I joined in the destruction of its foul heart until he had impaled the vampire to the ground. William held our dear sister, but it was all for naught. Too much of her blood had been consumed. Not leaving anything to chance, I used the lamplight to set the monster ablaze in the dismal grave. All while William wept and held our deceased sister. Alice, sweet Alice. Afterward, we buried our father and sister in the family plot. William remained on the farm while I moved to Boston to pursue academia. Later, we were notified of the desecration of our sister's grave. Her body had seemingly been snatched. The work of grave robbers was assumed, but we knew better. How foolish we were. Grandmother's stories told of the infectious nature of the undead evil. Now we hear tales of a ghostly woman haunting the hills around our former home, attacking campers and travelers. William has asked me to join him in giving her a merciful end. I write this before I make my journey into the woods along with William to finally put an end to the madness. Pray for me as I pray to put our beloved sister to rest peacefully at long last. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Talk about sibling rivalry. 
I'm not sure Alice has the heart for it. But don't you lose hope, cadavers. We have another story right after this. in your belfry, ghouls in your garbage. You may be renting from the landlord in our next tale, Lord of Land. Parasites, that's what they are. Moving into my buildings and wanting more, more, more. I've been in the landlord business ever since I inherited it from my lousy dad, but I made it work for me, me and my wallet. Milking those losers for everything they were worth for units worth less than half their lease. <laughs> Hiring whatever dumbass willing to pretend to be a maintenance worker whenever there was a problem. Buying the cheapest FDA unapproved rat poison whenever they complained about the pests and sprinkling it around. It didn't matter cheap solutions to problems nobody but them cared about. But selling the ground out from under these parasites, that's where the real money is. All it took was one big push. This old lady, Mary Vasquez, lived here since my dad owned the building, complained the last couple years about leaky roofs and fallen grit. Nothing a little cardboard couldn't solve until a brick in the ceiling bashed her skull in, <laughs> was able to circumvent the law. An act of God, we declared. She had no family, nobody cared. And with that, was able to make my case to some big realty company. Wanted to build some high-rise luxury apartments. Crap none of these losers could afford. So I forced them out. I was throwing eviction notices around like valentines. They cried, they screamed, they told me they had nowhere else to go. Well, ain't my damn problem, I told them. Go to the homeless shelter or a cardboard box. Had the cops with me to rip them out like a bad tooth. This is it. My old man's building about to be demolished. Figured... I might as well take another search, see if I can find anything of worth in Mary's old unit before the whole place goes up in smoke. Mostly crap, but you can always find some gems along with the dirt. Especially from old ladies. Some jewelry, some gold, some antiques. A few extra bucks for the fat stack I'm gonna make. <laughs> I see she's got this framed portrait. Home is where the heart is. She was a bit of an artist. Like it did her any good. Living on my property and living off social security like a rat. Not like me. I'm a self-made man. And now I was gonna be even bigger. I take my loot and head out. But the knob won't budge. I bang on the door, no, nothing. Cheap piece of crap. Glad I got this place going down. No signal on my cell phone either. 
nothing. I hit the window. It won't shatter. I scream, but nobody hears me. Damn it! Damn it! It's like... I'm trapped. Trapped like a... No. I bang on the walls. I hit the pipes. I smash it. Smash it. I break all of Mary's things. Her forgotten items. And there's that portrait. Taunting me. Home is where the heart is. That's crap is all it is. It's all crap. 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 It's been hours. I don't know how long. The demolition order is about to begin. I see it coming. That machine. The wrecking ball. This home is my tomb. The ball swings. Here it comes. Sorry, Stanley. That's just how the apartment crumbles. But not for you, cadavers. We have many more stories for you just after the break. Had your teeth checked lately? Our next tale will have you counting your cavities in a story I call Decay. Teeth. We take them for granted. They chew our food. We use them for our defense. They're considered beautiful. Yet they can become lost or infected. It can kill a person. That's why I decided to be a dentist. That and the big fat paycheck. I was lucky to become an assistant to Bill Schaefer, DDS, at his office and get a start on my career. We've been here a year and I wanted to move forward, but I needed a referral. Mr. Schaefer insisted, when you're ready, I'll help you out. But you're not ready yet. One day a man came rushing into Schaefer's practice. He called himself Weston and he was nearly howling in agony. He said he woke up this morning and the pain in his tooth had been building and building until he was in absolute pain. Patients do tend to get dramatic under these circumstances. It was an emergency. His insurance passed and we were there to help. He was begging for Novocaine by the time we had him in the chair. Grateful when we gave him three injections worth, Dr. Schaefer went in for a closer look. It seemed like an infected tooth. The telltale signs were there. Puffy red and bleeding gums, intense pain, cracked tooth. But the odd thing about the tooth was it was pulsing. The rod exposed roots and lines along it, but not in natural patterns. It was almost like it was etched writing, sigils along the enamel. It wasn't a natural phenomenon. I asked Dr. Schaefer if we should take a closer look. Dr. Schaefer continued to insist it was simply an infection and nothing more. Relax, Betty. It's just tooth decay. You'll get used to this kind of horror. He didn't take my questioning seriously. Fair enough. 
He was the professional. He knew what he was doing. So I thought. He began drilling the tooth while I worked suction. As soon as the drill hit, it was like nails on a chalkboard. We've done root canals and cavity drills plenty of times before. It sounded like he was jackhammering concrete. Weston began convulsing, the vibration shaking everything touching him. The suction tube was taking in the blood and enamel. And something else, a black sludge, like oil. It wasn't infected tissue. I couldn't even tell what in God's name it was. Weston seemed to convulse, like he was having a seizure. Dr. Schaefer still drilling at that infected tooth until he screamed. Sludge, the oil, whatever it was coming out of that tooth was crawling up his hand. Those tentacles, tendrils grabbed him. The drill went out of control, shredding Weston's mouth, but he didn't react. Weston stood up, blood and tentacles coming out of his mouth from that evil tooth, and went right into Schaefer's face. His jaw seemed to unhinge. I was scared. I fell back as he seemed to try and bite Schaefer. Blood and muffled scream filled the room. It was hellish. Blood splattered everywhere, all over the clinically clean and white tiles. In a panic, I grabbed the closest thing to me, a surgical hammer and chisel. Schaefer's face was basically ripped off, and Weston was like a zombie t- turned to me, a mouthful of slime and tendrils whipping at me. He jumps me. The smell coming off of him is toxic, like raw sewage. Closer, I hear something, like a rumbling or muttering within his mouth, but not his voice, in a language I cannot understand. I know if he gets his mouth on me, I'm dead, so I roll on the floor with him, covered in blood and ichor, until I get a swing in. Bam! I hit his jaw. I go again and again, blood and sludges everywhere. His mandible is nearly off and I keep smashing until I get to the inside of his mouth. I slashed away the tentacles with the tendril. It's some kind of demon, monster or something, like a chick hatching from an egg, in this case a molar. It has eyes and mouths all over it like a tumor from hell. It squeals at me as I raise the hammer again and smash the thing to mush over and over. When the police were called, I told them Weston must have been on bath salts or something. He went nuts and killed Dr. Schaefer, and I had to defend myself. They believed me. The alternative was too much. However, the next morning, I feel a tingling in my mouth. I look in the mirror, and one of my molars has the same marks that Weston had. I can feel it throb. I can feel it grow within. I grab a wrench. Maybe if I can get it out now, I'll be fine. I put the wrench to my tooth after a bottle of vodka, and I ready myself. I must stop the infection before it spreads. Demons can be a real pain in the tooth. Let's take a break and cleanse our pearly whites.
you can never please all of the people all the time. An artist learns this the hard way while adapting a beloved comic character into a new show. This tale is called Reboot. When you're a fan of something, you always want to add your voice to the story, your love. But it's so easy for that love to get turned into hate. And the thing I love most is my art. That's why I became an animator and artist. And the thing that inspired me to follow my career was the cartoon, Galaxia the Defender. Ever since I was a kid, I watched the show on TV around the clock. Galaxia is the princess of space and has to defend the solar system from black hole demons with her magic shield and superpowers. She was so cool and I wanted to be just like her. Of course, I couldn't actually be a galaxy princess or anything, so I did the next best thing. I got into animation. Starting small, posting my own art online, doing my own comics until I was hired by a studio. From there, I jumped from show to show until I got my big break with a network. I pitched the heads of the studio on doing a Galaxia reboot. The cartoon was beloved by fans the world over since it ended several years ago, but nothing had been done with the property since. I put together a portfolio of designs, episode ideas. They were sold. It was the happiest day of my life. News spread fast after that. All the online blogs and sites were talking about Galaxia getting a reboot. There was outrage, of course. Mostly trolls pissed off that a woman was handling an animated series starring a woman. (laughs) Go figure. They were furious, saying Galaxia was a sacred cow that should not be tampered with, and that I'd screw it up and ruin it. Then as production began, it started happening. I was being sent death threats. Stuff like, Galaxia wants you dead, and you dishonor Galaxia and must die. Like it was Galaxia sending them or someone thinking they represented her. I reported them to the police, but there was little they could do, or at least that's what they said. I was getting them from encrypted dummy emails, so they were impossible to trace. It started weighing on me, freaking me out, started affecting my work. I kept telling myself it was just some freaky but harmless lunatic fan. Nothing would actually happen, right? There was so much stress and anxiety, I couldn't eat or sleep. Sometimes I'd look at my drawings, and they seemed to change on their own, like Galaxia was looking at me. No, it was crazy. I just had to focus, just had to keep drawing. But the pressure was crushing me with every death threat and every hateful contact on social media. It was the big night, the premiere of our Galaxia the Defender reboot. Nothing had happened to me, and I was feeling better. It must have been idle threats or some kind of sick joke. But as I stood there getting photographed and congratulated, I I felt uneasy, like I was being watched, like the danger wasn't over yet. I went into the bathroom to splash water on my face. I don't know, to clear my head, I guess. It's, It's just nerves. It's just nerves. It's just nerves, I told myself. Die, heathen, was all I heard before I was on the ground. I got hit over the head with something. I I was dizzy. I looked up and there he was, Melvin Ulrich, dressed as a caterer and holding a knife. He was a YouTuber, a social media presence all about nostalgic cartoons and crap like that. He ranted about how we would be ruining Galaxia along with hundreds of other wackos on the internet. There he was, 
He screamed. I won't allow you to destroy my childhood. He smashed me with the handle of his knife and was planning on stabbing me then and there. I managed to punch his knee, make him buckle before he could make the killing blow. He trailed after me, jumping on my back in the hallway. We were on the floor. He held the knife towards my throat. This was the end, being stabbed to death over a cartoon. As we struggled and rolled, some of the display props fell over, including Galaxia's shield. With every ounce of my strength, I threw him off and grabbed it. You are not worthy of that shield, he declared, as though it was the real thing, that I was taking something from him. As he lunged forward, I threw the shield. I managed to bounce the knife in his grip, and he stabbed himself in the neck. Looking at me dumbfounded, a look of disbelief as the blood spurt forward, and he fell, dead. The incident soured the premiere. The cops came, and they believed my story. Through Melvin's phone, they found he was the source of the death threats. Everyone understood what had happened. The show was a huge success, in no small part thanks to the real-life controversy of my attack. We even got greenlit for a second season, which I immediately agreed to. I was shaken, but oddly my resolve was strengthened. I guess I got to be like Galaxia after all. Melvin really stuck his neck out for his favorite superhero. Let's see what other body parts get stuck after this break. Our next tale takes us south to the U.S.-Mexico border where a reporter sticks his nose out for a mysterious woman in a story I call The Masses. The truth will set you free. Sometimes the opposite is true. You may have seen me on the local Albuquerque news reporting on undocumented detainment. And you'd see more of me if my producers permitted me to continue that series. After the first few times, we legitimately tried to investigate the local detainment center that has since been dubbed Wonderland on account of how many kids are being sent there and not coming back. It's privately owned by Magnadine Corporations through the government contract, and we're unsure of the conditions of the undocumented migrants, mostly children who are being held there. Then one night, I get a message from somebody who works at Wonderland, says her name's Emily Barnes. She was hired as a nurse, but what she's seen in the facility is too disturbing for words, and she wanted me to break the story. Emily refused to go into detail, but she told me that this is something that you have to see and record for yourself, and she couldn't stay silent about it any longer. I met her at the designated point just outside the compound. From there, she led me into a service tunnel when the guards weren't around. It was dark and I needed to document Wonderland. I turned on my phone's recorder, flashlight, and then asked Emily what it was that made her reach out to me. She paled before me. You have to see. You have to see and spread the word. Eventually, we made it into the holding cells through the main hall of the facility. It was no different than any other reports around the border. 
families trying to request asylum or trying to get into the country are rounded up and locked away, usually with the parents separated from their own children with little hope of being reunited. It's inhumane. I was looking into the faces of all these kids, recording them, all the while as they're looking at me. Their eyes were big. They looked malnourished and fatigued, wearing dirty clothes with a monitor playing cartoons highlighting them in the dimly lit cage. I wanted to let them out then and there. But Emily pulled me onward, saying that this wasn't why she brought me here. They weren't even motivated to ask. Those poor kids were without hope. We heard steps nearby. It must have been the patrol. You little bastards, keep it down in there, he yelled as he approached. Emily pulled me away from the cells. We have to move onward. You have to see it. She urged me on and away from the guard as he rounded the corner, leading me into one hall after another, the footsteps of the guard behind us. Crap! Did they hear us? We continued onward, tried to evade them. She led me through a corridor onto a catwalk in what looked like a surgical theater. You know, where the doctors and the students could watch the operations. We looked down and what I saw was beyond any horror I could have ever imagined. It was a man stripped naked on a table. Doctors were operating on him with mechanics and cybernetics through his arms and skull. His mouth was gagged, but he seemed conscious, eyes darting above. I prayed he couldn't see us. The logical next step with prisoners who aren't considered citizens? Human experimentation, Emily told me. She said it began a month ago. They wanted to perfect cyber organics through the use of detainees. I held my stomach and began recording. She pushed me to leave. The guards were on our trail, and if we were discovered, we were as good as dead. As we made our way through the holding cells, we saw a blinding light. Who is that? Freeze! Emily hit him with a can of pepper spray, and he went down to the ground. More would be coming, though. Seconds later, we heard marching footsteps. We were through. Emily told me to leave with the footage and get it out as fast as possible. Don't make this for nothing. We're all counting on you. I remembered those kids in the cells. I ran into the service tunnel before the guards rounded the corner and made my way back to my car just outside the compound. I feared what would happen to Emily. I returned home right after to lay low. I didn't upload the footage yet. I needed a plan. I needed to make sure that it was legitimized instead of just another conspiracy video on the internet. I would run it by my producers and get it on the air, maybe even nationally. I had to show them what was happening at Wonderland. Detainment and degradation of the prisoners followed by experimentation on living beings. Tale as old as time. That morning, Emily was knocking at my door. I asked if she was okay. She didn't respond. What are you doing here? Still no response. She pushed me back into the living room and slammed the front door. Before I knew it, there was a stinging pain in my side. She had stabbed me, but not with a knife exactly. It was with a blade that was coming out of her hand, the cybernetics. 
Whatever they were doing to the prisoners, they had done to her. Emily, please, you have to control yourself. It did no good. She continued her attack. I did my best to evade her. A slice to my forearm, a puncture to my thigh. Little by little, she was going to bleed me dry. I stared her in the eyes, and she blinked just as she swung for the killing blow, embedding her hand into the sink. She struggled to remove the augmented limb, but she was jammed, if only for a minute. Thinking quickly, I turned on the tap, filling the sink with water, and threw a nearby toaster in. The effect was instant. She was convulsing, sparks flying everywhere, the lights flickering, flesh burning. Her eyes seemed to sizzle and smoke until she fell thankfully dead. Cyborg soldiers, they were using those detainees as guinea pigs to make them more easily controllable and deadly drones. Poor Emily, left in a crumpled heap, her insides scooped out and filled with the Magnetite brand cybernetics. It was sick. I acted fast. They knew about me. They knew what I had. I had no idea how high up this went. I snatched as much gear as I could load into my car after taking pictures of Emily's dead body and patched myself up. Poor Emily, trying to save those people from the same fate she endured. I can't let her death have been in vain. I sent the footage to anyone and everyone I could. I'm driving to... I don't even know where. I have to find safety, and I have to hope the world learns the truth. It leads. That bloody tale leads us into our next break. Or is it just me? It might be our next story, which is a cautionary tale of what could happen if we don't respect Mother Nature and she creates a hostile environment. This is Roger Atkins with the EPA recording for posterity. I've decided to start this log as we brace for the hottest summer on record. The average temperatures from coast to coast will be around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, we're already preparing for the worst of it, I hope. There's sure to be power outages due to the overuse of air conditioning and high risks of mainly homeless and elderly and young children dying of overheating. And it's only April. Week two, as predicted, There have been some casualties due to the heat, both coasts, but mainly in the west, south, and southeast. The CDC is encouraging everyone to stay hydrated, and free water supplies and bottles are being passed out to the public. Stranger yet, there have been some disappearances, mass disappearances in the sea. It's unprecedented, 
But people swimming in the various beaches across the country have been reported as missing after entering the ocean. Not drowning, no bodies have been found, and it's too much and too recent of a phenomenon to be a mere coincidence. We have our theories, but there's another factor. Sightings of strange shapes in the water, mostly picked up from random social media chatter and videos. We have seen odd species migrations due to the rising temperatures in the water. Perhaps it's sharks being pushed from their natural environment or some other predator. Week three, things have taken a turn for the worse. All recreational swimming in the ocean has been banned by federal mandate. This is not a drill. More and more people disappeared through the last week, but they're not disappearing. They're being eaten. Those things, they've been emerging along the coast all across the world. Reports and footage have been streaming in. We, we were lucky to have found samples. Some that have washed ashore, dead. They're similar to sea creatures like the common jellyfish, starfish, or anemone, but far more complex and aggressive. It's an invasive species. From where? We do not know, but clearly from the depths that we have not reached before. We are taking precautions now and are looking into options for dealing with the problem. Week four. There's no stopping it now. Reports and sightings started coming in. The things, hell jellies they're being called on social media. They're on land. They're making it to shore. We still haven't figured out how. Adaptability? Amphibian nature? It doesn't matter. Thousands of these things have been invading the mainland through any body of water they can. There have even been reports of them emerging from pipes and sewer systems to attack humans in their own homes. Atlantic or Pacific, they seem to exclusively target humans. First it was the swimmers, now it's people on dry land. And they seem to be moving inland further and further. The National Guard has been called in. I don't know what good it will do. Bullets have little to no effect. Their bodies are mostly water. A state of emergency declared. We've met our match in the food chain. Weak. I've lost track. It doesn't matter anymore. The hell jellies are devouring everything in sight. Conventional weapons don't work. There's talk of chemical and nerve agents being used, despite the fallout and casualties. We cannot hold out much longer. They've infiltrated the buildings. They sneak in through the crevices. The hell jellies are here to stay. Simple as that. And the heat. It feels like my brain is boiling. Maybe this is what we deserved. We were at the top of the food chain, and now we have a successor. I wonder what will get me first. Them or the heat. This is Roger Atkins signing off in the former planet Earth.
I guess Mother Nature is just too hot to handle for Roger. If you can sweat it through one last break, the final tale waits for you on the other side. cadavers. Our final tale has us stuck in tragic traffic in a story I call Road Rage. They say the more you drive, the less intelligent you are. Having to drive so many drunk people and one night stands home on a continuous basis, I'm starting to believe the opposite is true. It's tough living in Los Angeles, and the job market's pretty thin. But they're always looking for drivers, be it cabs, rideshare apps, or good old-fashioned taxis. If you can drive, you can find work. It's nearly 6 a.m. The sun's beginning to rise. Time to pack it in and go home so I can have a cigarette and sleep before I go driving again. Stuck in this damn cycle. Not that many other cars out. Smooth jazz on the radio. Had to get some sleep before I pass out on the wheel. But there's this beat up truck behind me. Seems to have been trailing me for a while. No idea why. I switch lanes. He's still on my ass. Then he slams into me. What the hell is your problem, asshole? I yell out as though he could hear me. All I could think about was how much of my paint probably got scraped off and how I was going to sue him into oblivion. Then he hits me again and again. Did I cut him off? Was he drunk? It didn't matter. He was going to run me off the road if I didn't do something. The jazz continues coming out of the radio, but it flickers with every collision. I slow down as he speeds up. Switch lanes. He's right next to me. I can barely get a good look at the bastard. Get off the road, I scream at him as he hits my side. He's going to run me off the road. I'm going to die in a car crash. Just another statistic. Then I see it. Light pole at the next cross section. Need to time it just right if I want to make it out of there alive. You drive like my grandma. Slow! I yell through the window. That seems to spur a reaction. He hits my side again. Less than a mile. I push with all my might into him as metal screeches against metal. Boom! The truck wraps around that light pole. The worst was over. At least it should have been. The radio flickers, like static, must have gotten busted by the attack. I have my phone in my hand, ready to call the cops when curiosity gets the better of me. I look inside the truck, and it's not just some psycho or drunk maniac. It's some guy. At least it was. He's got all these wires and plugs jammed into his body all over, into his skin. He's bleeding all over the place, and there's this weird, clear liquid leaking from his cuts and the engine. What the holy hell was this? I try to call 911, but nobody answers. The line's busy and nobody can help. I go back into my car to see if I can still drive away. Something weird was going on and I needed to get somewhere safe. But as soon as I'm in the driver's seat, the car roars to life and the radio gives off this terrible screeching static. 
pure white noise. Wires and cords, just like the one hooked to the other guy, are sticking out of the dashboard like snakes. I scream as they come at me, and I leapt out the door. I can smell the gas leaking. I pull out my lighter, flick it, and toss it, just like in the movies. The car's screeching like it's alive as it goes up in flames. Then I realize the light from my car burning up after it tries to eat me isn't the only one. I look from the hills. I see it. Everything going to hell. Cars just rampaging. Poor bastards probably bound to the wheel like that guy in the truck and like I almost was. People getting run over into paste and buildings getting smashed. It's like all that pent-up road rage in this town exploded and infested our cars. I look back to my own car as it smolders. I'll walk from here on out. Seems like the healthier option, even if I won't be able to make it very far. Well, I guess she took the high road. I always take the low. Unfortunately, it's the end of the road for you cadavers. I hope you enjoyed our dead time stories about rage. Do come visit me again soon. We have many more short, scary stories to share. You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The eight stories you've just heard were written by Jacob Davison. You can also find more thrilling stories from Graveyard Shift on Ranker.com, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and other connected TV apps. Tonight's production starred Todd Denson and Kayla Jeffries, with editing by my younger brother, Martin Martinez. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell.